Well, what is up, everybody, people of the world, wherever you're watching from, hello, good day. Hopefully you're doing well. Thanks for hitting play and joining us and carving some time out to join us today for another online gathering at Praxis Church. We're just so thrilled that you're joining us. We're knees deep now into another lockdown, as you know, and it's come once again to Heather cutting my hair and we're back to Tukes. This is just the world we're living in. We've got a whole household here that needs haircuts. And so, Heather, you're amazing. But, man, I cannot wait for uh, the day where we can actually go back and get a, get a haircut. As many of you know, many of you are just with me. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But it is so great to have you with us. If we have not met, my name is Drew. I'm a leader, pastor here at Praxis Church. Maybe you stumbled across this in the interwebs, in this wor- new world. Not new world. I know the Internet's old. But this whole new world of being primarily online right now. Well done. We're just so happy that you're with us. And if you're on the regular, thanks for joining us and just being a faithful part in and through very weird times with us. Thanks for being a faithful part of this community. We love you. Much love to you and your families and all the households at Praxis Church. Um, What we said last week is we're just taking a few weeks and what we're going to do, normally we open up with some music and worship and we know even there's kind of, that can kind of be weird too when we're distant and not in the same room together. But what we thought we would do is we would start our gatherings over the next few weeks just with the teaching, which would then lead us into a time of worship, and our team is going to come and lead us, but as well a time of communion or Eucharist. And so we want to encourage you, if you want to get bread and, wa- bread and wine ready, I was going to say bed, bread and wine ready, but bread and wine ready, and we'll take that at the end. We also encourage you maybe at the end of this, as part of a response to worship, you be in your home, want to eat a meal in the name of Jesus, we encourage that too. Maybe this is lined up perfectly for you just to eat and remember Jesus, hey, hey the the... The church centered in the early uh, days, in its early days, around a table, and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper was actually around a table. It was a full meal. So we're not going to get too legalistic around this. We just want uh, through bread and wine to remember Jesus and his kingdom. So any way you want to do that at the end as we worship together, we just want to prepare you for that. The other thing, just before we jump in, is we're just so thankful for the response uh, to our friends at Arcade Mission. Right now, there's lots going on with COVID, lots of restrictions, obviously, and there's been lots of needs at Arcade and the mission and the work that they do with media those on the margins. And so thank you for those of you that gave or contributed or even dropped stuff off at Arc Aid. They're looking for a number of supplies. And there was an immediate response from our community. And we're just so thrilled that you guys would jump right on where we're able to buy a number of items. Basically, their supply uh, was getting low in a number of different areas. And so we're going to be able to help over time here. So we're just so thankful for you guys. If you want to join in on that, you can give to our Spring Outreach. Just go on our website to the donate button and you can give directly to Spring Outreach. Every single dollar will go to Arcade Mission and buying the supplies that they need. And as well, we're going to give $400 or so out of our own budget just to say we want to give to this as part of our outreach this season. With all that said, thank you. We love you guys, man. You're just honestly so proud and happy to be a part of a community like this. Uh, With that said, You want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. You can open it up with me, Matthew chapter 5. I noted last week that it's a little unique right now. We're not really in a series. Normally, we're well-planned, well in advance of knowing where we're headed with our teachings and our themes, and I've just felt through this kind of new lockdown, I don't know what you call it, but this new season of not being able to be together that 
we just kind of take it week by week. There's some pastoral reflections and things I've just been thinking through. Last week we talked about creation care. There's lots on my mind and heart right now around race and racism and racial reconciliation. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some other things that I think are kind of on the heart too over the next few weeks, just as far as next week is Mother's Day and talking about woman in the kingdom of God. And so these are just kind of one-off teachings. Um, and for today, I don't know how to articulate it. I, I just feel like when we, I, I do, I, you're like, you don't know how to articulate it. I guess I do know how to articulate it, but I've been really wrestling. In my, you're like, you're a teacher. You're, you're supposed to say the right things. Um, I've just been thinking a lot the last little while just around things like social justice and biblical justice and racial justice and some of the things we're seeing in our cultural moment. And when we come to these things, I, I think, I feel, this is just a, a personal kind of position, I tend to feel that there's a conversation that we don't have that is often under it. And if we don't talk about this, um, a lot of what we hope to do as people, as citizens of the kingdom of God and being love and light in our world around justice and God setting the world to rights will be missed if we don't talk about it. And it's the area of violence and enemy love. There's a lot uh, in our history, especially as colonized people, um, and uh, you know the history of our own country and our own continent. There's a lot of things under it that we don't talk about around violence and the perpetuation of violence. And I just think we need to talk about this. I think uh, Jesus talks about this and we're gonna look directly to Jesus' words and what he says here. And Jesus says some very important things, but um, I've just been sensing that we, part of our issue can be that we live in a culture that is often predicated on violence. And many of us may look around and go, look at the context we're in is very peaceful right now in the Canadian context. And we're known as the peaceful people, right? In Canada, eh? Are you with me? We're just, we're the nice people, eh? Sorry you boot it. Sorry you boot that, eh? Right? Like that's, this is just us. And yet I do think a lot of the injustice that we see in our world under it is, um, is violence. And there's a lot of people over the centuries that have really struggled, even with some of the violence that we see in the Bible. We don't have the time to talk about the Old Testament, but I was looking back, uh, I have actually done over the last few years two full-length teachings on violence in the Old Testament. They're like almost, each of them are almost an hour long. And we can make those available to our community. There's a lot in there coming from the different perspectives of violence in the Old Testament. We've really wrestled through this. And so we've unpacked what theologians and what thinkers and people over the centuries have done to wrestle through the violent text, the Canaanite conquest, all that. We're not going to get into that today, but it's out there. It's available. We've wrestled through this. But I want to go straight to the source. I want to go straight to Jesus. You know, many of you that are close to me and know me well, maybe we're uh, friends or whatever, know that I take and have, have taken for many years a very nonviolent posture. And some would use the word passivism or pacifist. Um, and that's a position that I've just landed on. And I, I always think about our own community and those of you that are watching and joining in with us. My goal is not to push my ideas or thoughts on us. I just want to go to the source. I want to go to Jesus himself and what he says about this.
So I hope that's okay. Um, but there are struggles around this in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the humanist and, and thinker, he passed away a couple years ago. His name is Christopher Hitchens. Many of you would know him. He says this about the God of the Bible and the God of the Old Testament. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He says, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, and infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sodomosh, let me use this word, big words here from Hitchens, sodomashonistic, there you go, that just rolls off the tongue, capriciously malevolent bully. This was Hitchens' perspective. Big words here, so big I can't even read them off my tablet, right? There you go. And this is the frame that a lot of people come from when they come to the God of the Bible. They see violence, they see what's going on, they're like, man, look at this, this is a bloodthirsty God. One of the questions we've just thought through is what do we do as a community? Uh, I think Shane Claiborne put it best when he said the cure to bad theology is not no theology, but good theology. And with a lot of the cultural topics that we address and dive into here at Praxis, this has always been before me. We don't throw everything out and go, well, we don't need any thought through this. What we need is good theology, not no theology, but good theology. And as I've already kind of alluded to, North America and in Canada, we do have a colonized and violent history. We do. And violence, begets violence, and we've seen this, that there's, there's actually a cycle in this, that violence produces violence, and this is at times in the root of, of who we are in our history, and I think it needs to be talked about, especially with our friends in America, and I don't mean to just like simply point to our neighbors to the south, but I even hear theologians talk about military violence in a way that seems very anti-kingdom. Jerry Falwell, who is really um, at the heart of the moral majority in the 80s, he said this, he called America back to biblical values, which he felt included patriotism and a strong military to ward off the threat of communism. And if you know the 80s and 90s, this was kind of the spiel. Another New Testament, uh, New Testament scholar, I think, Wayne Grudem, anyways, New Testament, Old Testament, whatever, he's a, a scholar, he says this, genuine peace in the world comes through the strength of the United States. And so we kind of think, well, what about the rest of us, right? He goes on to say, CIA drone strikes notwithstanding. What's so fascinating about this is a lot of people, we don't have a ton of time to talk about the Old Testament because again, we wanna get to Jesus' words, but uh, people look to the Old Testament and the story of Israel and some of the violence around that. But if North America was to fight like Israel in the Old Testament, it would look like this. Enlistment would be voluntary only. The military would not be funded by taxes. This was Israel in the Old Testament. The military would not stockpile superior weapons. It would make sure its victories were determined by God's miraculous intervention, not by military might, right? And the military would fight outmanned and ungunned, right? 
Like if we just, let, oftentimes what we want to do, and especially our brothers and sisters to the South, want to compare America to God's people in the Bible, and then yet this is how God worked in through Israel. Like if you read even some of the war stuff, you just realize how crazy it is that they would like march around a place, not use weapons, but use like instruments, right? This, this right, to, the, the comparison, we've got to be very careful to compare this. And so right now, there is a lot of talk, and we're engaging in this, around biblical justice or social justice. There's lots of talk about racial reconciliation. There's lots of talk about these issues in our culture, but there is very little talk about violence. There's, I, I, honestly, I hear very few people in our moment right now talk about violence and the church's posture to this. And so, brothers and sisters, let's look at what Jesus said, okay? Open up your Bible, Matthew 5, 38. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said. So Jesus, the good Jewish guy here, Jewish teacher, is going to push us back to the Old Testament. Eye for eye, he quotes, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. There it is, straight out of Jesus' mouth. I'm not trying to make anybody here a pacifist or nonviolent. I just want us all to take Jesus' words very, very seriously here. And what does he do? Again, he quotes Exodus 21:24 and Leviticus 24:20. And he quotes their understanding from the law. What is it? Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This was the common understanding of the Torah, and yet Jesus comes, and as we know, one of the things Jesus says about himself is that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so this is the Sermon on the Mount here, and what you get is all sorts of what I would call antithesis, that the law said something, and now Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, is giving a new kingdom vision, and he's fulfilling the law and giving in some ways a new interpretation as far as how kingdom people will live this from this moment on, from the mountain on, from Jesus' teachings on, that the church would actually live this out differently. So the Old Testament was shaped by this thing called lex talionis. Some of you know it as the law of retaliation. It included both capital punishment, so life for life, like in the law, it was life for life. And this was kind of a, a boundary and a guide for Israel and how they would live. And corporal punishment, tooth for tooth. And Jesus is acknowledging here that that was the way, but there is a new way. And the new way is non-resistant love. This is Jesus' kingdom vision. Again, this is not, can I just say, I said it last week, this is not some woke agenda. Please hear me if you're like, man, here come the liberals or whatever. I don't even, again, I've said it last week. I don't know what that means. I want to be very faithful um, all I know is when we get into some of these issues and we look at the life of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have conservative people mad at you. I'm just politically conservative people mad at you, and you're going to have liberal people mad at you. Jesus, 
didn't get pinned to a cross because he was just like loving everybody all the time. He was, he was love and is love and showed love, but it's just interesting just because he cared for people is not what pinned Jesus to a cross. He had this kingdom that was grating against all, so it was such a different way, an upside down way of following God. And so Jesus is giving this picture of non-resistant love, right? Jesus ends the Mosaic command to show no pity and places orders for his followers to actually be merciful, be merciful. And Jesus says this, do not resist an evil person. N.T. Wright, the great scholar, puts it like this. He translates this, don't use violence to resist evil. Another person translated this as, be ready for an act of grace instead of resistance. And so this is what Jesus is actually doing here. He is denouncing resistance. The kingdom will not trade in retribution because people will live justly, this is the hope, and lovingly and peacefully with one another. One of my favorite theologians, Bonhoeffer, this is like one of my favorite quotes in what he says. He says this, listen, this is amazing. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object. He says, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffer. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. I love that. Evil will become powerless when it doesn't have anything to spar with. And I think about the Jesus community, and I think about what Jesus says, and I think this is, this is the Jesus way. So Jesus' point here is that his followers respond to the other, whether that's the enemy or other people, with non-resistant, life-transforming love. And if you, don't, if you don't catch it here, what Jesus does is he actually, in the text that we just read, gives four examples how to behave non-resistantly to evil persons. It's actually really, it's really practical for Jesus. And I want to talk about them because these actually, these examples emerge from the Greco-Roman kind of context of the day. You have to remember this is a couple thousand years ago uh, with all sorts of kind of political and uh, governing layers to it. There's all sorts of things going on as the Jewish people are under Roman occupation. Jesus actually uses concrete images for them to show them how to respond without resistance. He begins to actually put before them, here's how you can respond and how grace can actually go beyond retribution. And he actually uses the social customs of the day. So here's what I want to do, wherever you're watching, wherever you're joining us from. What I want to do is I just want to look at these four things and show you the Jesus way when it comes to violence and retribution. Sound like a plan? All right. First thing Jesus does is this. He says, if anyone slaps you on the cheek. Now, what's crazy here is that Jesus actually says, when anyone slaps you on the right cheek, and we read it and we go, cool, all right, like don't, you know, we're going to go farther if, you know, we get slapped in the cheek. But there's actually deeper layers to this. Many of you know that the first century is an honor-shame society, and there was nothing worse than shaming somebody in that culture. This, this landed in violence, this landed in even down to things like how families would interact with each other. It was a very honor-shame society. Honor was such a massive deal, and to shame somebody was like just a, a huge deal in this culture. Now what's crazy is, now I'm, I'm, I'm left-handed, but most of us are right-handed. 
any left-handed people out there, I'm left-handed, but I still shoot a hockey stick right. I still swing a baseball bat. So like I'm left-handed when I write and I eat. I'm kind of in the middle. But most of us are right-handed people. And don't miss what Jesus is saying here. When somebody slaps you in this culture on the right cheek, I just hit my mic, sorry. When somebody slaps you on the right cheek, what are they doing? They're hitting you with the back of their hand. And this is what Jesus is actually getting at. There's something here. In this honor-shame society, there was, this was a huge insult to backhand slap somebody in the face. It was like you were taking away the dignity of the person. Actually, in the Mishnah, which was like the oral tradition of the scriptures, it talks about how a backhand slap was actually paid, uh, was paid with double the fine if you were caught, right, than a normal slap. So you slap somebody, there's a fine. If you use the back of your hand because it's actually shaming somebody, you're actually fined double. So Jesus is not just talking about physical violence here, but the shaming that comes with a backhanded slap. And Jesus says, instead of striking back, which would be justifiable through the retribution in Moses, no mercy law, Jesus actually creates almost what would seem laughable in that culture. It would seem laughable for people to hear what Jesus was gonna say in the scene of grace. He tells his followers not just to take the shameful backhand slap, but to actually turn the other cheek also. If you were to hear this, I mean this in the first century, you're reading this, you would laugh out loud. And I, you know, it's very much the same in our culture with the type of retribution we love to get. This happens at a government level, and a country level, and it happens right down into the fabric of who we are. Trust me, I played competitive hockey, and I know, you know sports are sports, but what do you do when somebody does something to you? You get them back. Jesus says here, when you take the most shameful slap on the face, what you do is you give them the other cheek. Then he goes on, gives another picture. So that's the first picture. The second picture, if anyone wants to sue you, Jesus says. And he talks about this idea of giving and going farther and actually giving your cloak, which is unbelievable. Um, In the first century, men wore two levels of clothing. They had like an inner shirt and then they would have an outer cloak. And basically, that cloak was like a coat on, kind of on the outside. Now, Jesus is saying here, if someone sues for the shirt, he actually urges his fo- followers to go further and give them the coat as well. Now, you, you may be thinking in all the wardrobe that you have, we are talking about simplicity as well, but you know, in all the, all the clothes that you have, all right, I give my shirt and I give my coat. But in the first century, it's actually known that the cloak or the coat or the robe was used as both a cover, as something to wear, and as a sleeping blanket. Uh, but in the Old Testament, there were actually, and, the, and in the Old Testament, there were actually laws that prohibited taking a robe for any length of time. That this outer cloak was actually given more emphasis because it carried multiple functions in that day. So, The person suing goes for what's legal, right? The shirt. But Jesus goes further by urging his followers to relinquish their rights for their robe, which held many purposes. Again, laws in the Old Testament that you couldn't take a person's robe or cloak for extended periods of time. 
ultimately, this would deprive a person of, when you took their cloak, it would deprive a person of standard comforts and provision. And what Jesus says is you're gonna do this. Now, even deeper than this, even deeper than the function of the cloak in that day, was the scandalous image first century people would have gotten what Jesus is saying. Um, the picture that people would get in the first century when they're reading this is a picture of, of stripping down. And I think this is actually what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus says is to actually, in this whole idea of retribution, is to strip down in front of a person as a means of, of exhibiting radical distance from the social custom. The social custom is to kind of get back. Jesus gives a picture of somebody giving something that's really valuable, their outer cloak, something that's valuable to them, but also this picture of stripping right down. This is scandalous. So when somebody slaps you on the cheek with a shameful backhanded slap, you turn the other cheek. When somebody asks for your shirt, you actually, they wanna sue you for your shirt, what's legal, you go beyond and give them your cloak. Then the third picture is this, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what does Jesus say? You go one further. So in the Roman world, Roman soldiers had the capacity and ability at times to stop average citizens, and think about it with me, think about the Jews at this time who are, who are under oppression in Rome, under Caesar, under this military. They're very much living in exile. A Roman soldier at any time could stop somebody and get them to carry something. It was actually known in the Roman world that a soldier could stop anybody and they would get them to carry something a mile or whatever. They were, this was a way in which the military exerted power over regular kind of people in in the empire. And again, you got to think about the Jews at this point and the hostility and on an average day, maybe being stopped by a Roman, uh, Roman military soldier in a particular part of your city that you were basically at their whim. You would have to do what they say. Jesus says, when they ask you to carry something a mile, what do you do? You go further you take it the extra mile. I know we often talk in our language and in our lingo about going the extra mile. This was legit for Jesus. They saw it in their day, the oppression. And yet Jesus' call is not to push back or forcefully push back on the empire like so many Jewish zealots did throughout history. His call was to actually, to take it farther. You see the mark there? You know, the, the Roman soldier seeing the person. You see the mark there, you're gonna carry it to that point. And, Jesus' call was, you, you go further. So you turn the other cheek, you turn the other cheek, you give your cloak, right? This thing that was valuable in that day, you go the extra mile, and then Jesus ends this, and he gives a fourth example by saying, you give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here subverts the cultural norm by creating a system of grace and compassion and love. One theologian who I love calls this the ethic from above. No more lex talionis, no more retribution, retaliation. There is a different way for the people of God, and it's to go the extra mile. It's to turn the other cheek. It's to give at all costs, and that this would be a way in which would shape the world. Now here, please stick with me. We're almost done. 
Here's what this does. Think about it with me. Here's what this does. You may think, man, this sounds soft. This is not the world I grew up in. We retaliate. We fight for our rights. We do all this stuff. This is crazy. It is crazy. I'll give you that. But here's what this does. What Jesus is proposing here subverts the power, right? So when we act this way and we are nonviolent, and when we act in a way that doesn't display resistance, what it does is it takes away the power from those who are asserting it, okay? Stay with me. When I let you slap me on the cheek, when I let you take my coat, when I go the extra mile for you, and especially in that culture at that time, how much more power do you have over me, right? You actually, as the oppressor, you actually lose your power. And this is a way, this is an amazing way in which Jesus says, and I think helps his followers subvert the power dynamics of the day. If I go farther and I don't fight back and I give you my cloak and I take one on the other cheek and I give at all costs, you as the oppressor, the the oppressor, not you, but the oppressor, loses their power. It's, an unre- it's, it's really a creative way of living this out. And can I just say, from all my reading around the history of the church, one of the postures, and I don't want to make light of death, but one of the postures that the church took and uh, is one of the reasons why I think the church exploded in the first century especially under persecution from all sorts of different Caesars and different leaders and in culture, was because they were not afraid to die. They came from a posture, what are you gonna do? What's gonna happen? We're gonna die? If we die, we enter in to this world, this new and new created, new, this world made new. We live, we live forever. This threat of death, and again, I don't wanna make light of it because I know some of us have experienced death even recently in our lives, but when it came to persecution in the church, their posture was, what are you gonna do? We can go the extra mile. What are you gonna do? You're gonna kill us? Really? Our hope is not just in what we see here in the here and now. It goes much deeper and farther than that. And so when we live this way, it actually subverts the power structures over us. The power, if you go the extra mile, the, the oppressor loses their power. And the other thing I love about this whole kind of way in which Jesus, these four things in which Jesus kind of puts before us is that this is not as much passive, right? Like I've shared, I'm very much come from a non-violent and I would even use the word pacifist in the right context as something to describe myself as a Jesus follower. But it's not, here's the cool thing. It's not just passive. Jesus isn't just passive here. It's creative, it's, it's doing things in a way, again, that subverts the power structure in creative ways. It's not just about being passive, it's actually about being creative. And this is something that has lit me up on the kingdom of God. That Jesus isn't just calling his followers just to be weak and withdrawn, but that each one of these things is a creative way to respond to violence. And this is how Jesus' followers live. Many of you know in 2006 in Lancaster County, 
Um, in West Nickel Mines, at the West Nickel Mines School, there was a shooting where a gunman went in and went into a small Amish, I think Amish school in Pennsylvania in Lancaster County. And he lined a number of children up against the wall and went, went in with a gun. He took four children, or five, sorry, children's lives, injured five others, and in the process took his own life. And I just remember this. I remember it on not only the national news, but I remember seeing many people from this small little village on the news. And one thing I was com compelled by was just the response of this community. Many people don't know this, but this community actually began to pool their resources for the wife of the gunman and the killer. And many stories have been told now of this community, how they rallied around to care for the gunman's wife and children. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's not just passive, it's creative. If I go the extra mile, if I lay, if we lay our lives down for the people around us, what can you do to us? And this has been the story of Jesus' followers for a long time. So what Jesus is doing here is he's subverting the power. He's giving this beautiful picture of how we can respond. And not only that, Jesus empathizes. You know what's amazing and just kind of mind-blowing about these four different responses that Jesus gives? These are actually things that happened to him. Think about it. Jesus was beaten. He was stripped naked. I mean, his cloak, obviously. Like, come on, his cloak was taken, right? He walked across to his death. He walked, not just that extra mile, but walked into his death and self-sacrificially gave up of himself. And he gave without getting anything in return. Dying for the very people that despised him. So you go, you look at those four things and maybe some of us are like, man, that's, I just can't live. I'm just, deep within me is this retribution. When somebody does something to me, I want to get them back. And if it takes violence, then it takes violence. If some country does something to us or other nation or uh, ideological worldview, what do we do? We go and we get them back. How could we do this? Well, we look and we say, Jesus did this. Jesus did exactly what he proposes here in these four different pictures of what it means to live a non-resistant life. He did it. He put it on display. We say things all the time like, I want to be like Jesus. Oh, do you? I say it all the time. I would just, I, I want to be more like Jesus. Oh, do I? Really? Because when the rubber meets the road, when this hits the ground, we see that Jesus actually put this on display. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. He walked that road to the cross and he gave his entire life. So Jesus goes on, verse 43. Open, open up, we're almost there, I promise. Verse 43 says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this was true. In their day, there was a common idea around the Jewish community that you love those in the commonwealth. You loved your Hebrew brothers and sisters, but there was a lot of uh, negative posture to the nations around them. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even a tax collector is doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, Jesus says, therefore, as your heavenly father 
is perfect. So again, in the Old Testament, love your neighbor. Um, They typically thought of this idea of neighbor as their own type of people. And yet Jesus actually flips this word and believes, even in the language of the New Testament, that neighbor now is anybody that you come into contact with, not just those in the Jewish kind of commonwealth. And he calls his followers to pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever prayed for your enemies? I mean, what a, what a crazy experience that Jesus would actually call us to pray and love our enemies. And and notice, remember, that in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for what? They will be called children of God. And Jesus, once again, reiterates this here, that those who live this way and love their enemies, those are the ones that are the children of God. That when you love, you are a child of God. This is put on display in our lives, and that the evil person actually becomes our enemy, uh, becomes our neighbor, sorry. The evil person becomes our neighbor. Our enemies become our neighbor and we learn to love with no strings attached. This is the Jesus way. So with all that, I'll just say this. Um, As we talk about many of the cultural things in our moment, and we talk about, again, I've already said it, biblical justice, what, you know, uh, some of the wrestling in our own community, racial justice, all these things, this conversation around violence often goes void. We want the world set right, but oftentimes we want to be violent about it. And um, in North America, we've even created a system where um, violence just perpetuates violence. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, this talks about individual disciples. What about at a government level and war and all that? We don't have time for that today. I get that this is primarily talking more to individual disciples and how they live this out. I don't have all the answers, to be honest. I just know that Jesus calls us into a very radical posture here, and it's to lay our lives down. Easy to talk about into a camera to you guys on a Sunday, very, very difficult to live out. But I'll also say this. You know, sometimes denominations and groups kind of take certain things as their own. I'll just say this. Nonviolence and enemy love is not exclusively an Anabaptist thing as much as the Holy Spirit is not a Pentecostal thing or theology, right? And right thinking is a Baptist reform thing or the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you wanna call it, is an Anglican thing. Somehow through all of this, we kind of like this group has this emphasis and this group has this emphasis. I just, I refuse to walk those types of lines. All of this, all of this, including nonviolence, is embodied in the life of somebody who follows Jesus. And I just get suspicious of violence. You know, I feel this call to carry, I I can't carry a cross and be violent at the same time. And I also believe that the picture that Isaiah gives us is that our weapons, our guns, I mean, in this context in Isaiah, the swords of the day will be traded and melted down and made into plowshares where we will cultivate forever. And so it gives us a picture that actually just like creation care, we wanna act in the present as we will in the future, so we cultivate now because we will cultivate forever. Just wanna let you know, these these types of ideologies, these violent ideologies, the, the, the culture that is often predicated on violence will be melted away. 
So why don't we live like it here in the present? I want to live in the present the way that we will live in the future. And ultimately, I believe that these weapons, these things we put our trust in will be melted away and we will cultivate forever. This is the picture the Bible gives. This is not some progressive agenda. This is Jesus. This is his call for us. I want you to know, I'm not trying to make you into something you're not. This is not, this is not like some lobbying agenda. I just want us all to consider and take Jesus' words very, very seriously. That we are these people that live creatively to subvert the power of our day. And I know we live in Canada. I get it. In some ways, at, at, at 30,000 feet, we look and it's a very peaceful way of life. But just remember, in some of the disorientation we're feeling around justice, we have to look at how violence predicates violence. So brothers and sisters, I'm gonna pray for us. And would you join in with me and then we're gonna take some time and we're gonna take communion together wherever you're at and just end our time by worshiping together. But let me pray this over us. Father, in, in all that we've talked about, would you just come? Open our minds and our imaginations by your spirit to how we could live as your people in the world. This is not easy, we need your spirit. So we ask you to come and fill us and as we take the bread and the cup today as a reminder of your love for us, may that also be a picture, God, of the call for us to lay our lives down. Thank you for your work and thank you for our future and what you're calling us into. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray grace and peace on them in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen. Join in with us, let's sing together.